from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Y'all can grab a seat. Man, hey, uh, thanks so much for hosting me this week. It's been so fun to be uh, out in Shawnee all week with the team here. Uh, as, as they said, my name is Andrew. I serve as the lead pastor of our South Congregation. And it's one of those weird moments for me where I know you, but you don't know me. And so I'm kind of like the weird uncle in the family. I, I come from a big family. I'm one of 10. And every time I'm doing any family event at my house, my kids are like, now, now who is my uncle? Because <laughs> they have so many of them. Who, who is related to me and who is just some random stranger at the house? And uh, it's like, yeah, they, they don't know any of their uncles, but their uncles know them and love them. And that's how I feel about you guys. Man, I am so, so stoked to spend time with your team. Uh, I, I hope you know this. You have an unbelievable staff team here, uh, an intern, the residents here the staff, the elders, I mean, just a, a super, super gifted team out here. And I've known a few of them pretty well. Some of them I've not known as well. And just spending all week, man, I'm just, I'm coming away so blown away by the quality of leaders you have. And then I think, as I think about the baptisms that you're seeing, you know, for today, I think it's like 24 for the year. Can you believe that? 24 souls that have gone under the water of baptism. And I think that's more than Shawnee's seen maybe in the last two or three years combined. And that's obviously God's grace. That's obviously just his, his mercy at work. But I also think that's a direct response to your prayers and the good evangelistic work that you guys are doing in the city. So, man, I'm just, I'm cheering you on. Uh, I, I, want, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You guys are, are unbelievable. It's so fun to be with you. And also, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Maybe you were dragged along by somebody who was getting baptized. Maybe you were a friend or a family member of somebody getting baptized and you're singing the songs or you're, you're reading the words and you're like, I don't know what I think about any of this. I don't know where I'm at with Jesus. I don't know where I'm at with Christianity. If that's you, this is a really good place to be. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to believe what we believe. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to live the way that we're trying to live at all. We want to just say welcome to you. And actually, your very presence here is a blessing to us. And we are not claiming to have it all figured out, but we would be honored to process with you. I know the leaders out here would love to take you out for coffee and just help you understand why we have hope in Jesus. Amen? It's really fun to be with you. I'm excited for where we're going to be today in Isaiah chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, turn there, and I'm going to pray for us. Uh, you, you guys missed something really fun in the 9 o'clock. How many of you lost power at your house? Raise your hands so I can see. 
Yeah, about almost 80% of the room. Uh, we actually used hymnals in the nine o'clock service. It was amazing, man. I, like it made my, my little Baptist heart so happy. I haven't done that since I was about 11 years old. So you missed a really fun nine o'clock, but glad that you made it for this today. Let me pray for us and we'll get after it. Jesus, thank you for my friends. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the, the way that they function as salt and light in this town. And I pray, God, I pray that both people who have grown up around religion and grown up around the Bible and grown up around these truths and their hearts have just become so calloused and cold, I'm praying, God, that you would warm them up with your spirit today. And, and for the ones, God, that are far from you, that know they're far from you, that, that feel like they have literally nothing to offer you or stand in your presence, I'm praying that you would offer them mercy and grace today. And Jesus, for the ways that we've forgotten the, the story, <laughs> for the ways that we've forgotten what you're actually doing in our world and the promises that you have made, God, we pray that you would anchor us in your word today and anchor us in your promises. God, we pray that you would give us hope around this idea of you bringing peace to our world. And uh, even today where there's a gap, a gap in our heart of what we know to be true and what we feel, God, we pray that you would close that gap with your presence today. So come and move. Thank you for my friends. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Something really bizarre happened Christmas Eve, 1914, on the Western Front. 1914, the war between Germany and Great Britain had been raging for months and months. It was a bloody war. It was a violent war. Uh, lots of life was getting lost on the front lines. But on Christmas Eve... 1914, something really, really bizarre happened. It happened around 10 p.m. All of a sudden, all the noise of bullets and explosions and yelling started to go quiet, and then everything fell completely silent. One soldier, in fact, one of the last surviving veterans of World War I, here's what he had to say about it. He said, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty, and we went all outside the farm buildings and just stood listening, all I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire, and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, talking about Christmas morning, right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. And then what happened next was really bizarre. The, the Germans started to sing really loudly Christmas carols from the trenches. So then the British side, they start singing those same carols back, but in English, and they were singing back and forth like this. It went on for a few minutes, and then eventually some of the German soldiers ventured out of the trenches. They laid down their arms, and they carefully kind of ventured out into no man's land, and in English they were saying, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, Merry Christmas, Englishmen. So the English kind of came out as well, and like, oh, is this a trap? Are we about to do something really dumb? What's about to happen? Well, lo and behold, what ends up happening is the two sides come together in no man's land, and they actually experience a little bit of peace on Christmas Day. One soldier said this. He said, here we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. Can you imagine this? They began to exchange presents with each other, cigarettes, pipe tobacco, plum puddings, alcohol, other souvenirs. Uh, some of the soldiers started cutting the hair of other soldiers from the opposite side. Uh, and then, like, all of this kept going on until eventually they even played a game of football together in no man's land. It's unbelievable. 
But eventually, the sun began to set on Christmas Day. And as the sun set, as the silence kind of started to set, the war was back on. Alfred Anderson, that surviving veteran, says this. He says, the silence ended early and the killing started again. It was a short peace and a terrible war. Now, the first time I heard that story, man, on one level, it's kind of cool. It's like, wow, that's really fun that they did that. It's fun that they gave each other a break from fighting and recognized each other's one another common humanity for just a minute. You know, you're an image bearer of God. I'm an image bearer of God. Let's stop trying to kill each other. But on another level, when you read the story, it's just so sad, isn't it? It's just so sad because whatever peace that they had, it's like, man, you could have had that peace for real, but then because of human ego and pride and sin and brokenness in our world, you really can't. So, so even this, this temporary faux peace is not really peace, is it? In the background, they're about to kill each other all over again, even though they're in the name of Christmas taking a break. And here's why I share that story with you is because I actually think that that's sort of what it feels like for you and I as we step towards the holidays. We, we know that Christmas is like a time where we're even singing songs about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And then you turn on the news and what do you see? Wars in Ukraine and Israel and Palestine. You've got uh, violence that's spreading. You've got people doing horrible things to one another overseas. And you've got people doing tragic, horrible, broken things to each other here. You, you sit around at Christmas and you exchange gifts and stockings and you celebrate and you sing carols about Jesus coming to the world to bring peace. But then your own life, at least my own life, often is marked by anything but that peace. It feels like that peace is a million miles away. And so it almost feels like, hey, let's all just have a ceasefire where we pretend that the world is fine for 24 hours on Christmas. And then after that, we're just going to go back to business as usual and the fighting is going to start back over again. Do you, do you resonate with that at all? That, that realization of like we're singing truths that, that don't really feel to be true in our world. Bart Ehrman is a a uh, best-selling author and a scholar and a very outspoken agnostic. And somebody asked Bart Ehrman, they said, hey, what would it take for you, an outspoken, very thoughtful agnostic, what would it take for you to actually come to believe that Jesus was who he said he was? Here's what he said. He said, if Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. The reason I don't believe, Bart Ehrman says, is because Jesus failed to bring his promise of peace on earth. So friends, I want you to think about this. With all the chaos in your own life, with the gap between what you know to be true versus how you feel, with all the anxiety and all the stuff swirling, all the stuff that you brought into the room that maybe nobody else even knows that you're carrying, with all of that stuff, is the peace of Christmas a sham or is there something actually true here? Well, with that question, that's why what we're doing today and in this season of Advent matters so much. If you're like me and you didn't grow up in a, in a church tradition that celebrated Advent, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival of an important person. And an Advent for the Christian is the four weeks leading up to Christmas where you and I step into the longing and the desire that we have for Jesus to come. We're actually doing two things in Advent. The first thing we're doing is we're looking back on the first arrival of Jesus 
on the scene, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas, where God became a baby, he entered human history. So we look back and we remember the first coming of Jesus, but, and this is often neglected and forgotten about, there's a second side of Advent, and Advent really truly is, it's not just looking back, it's also looking ahead to the future coming of Jesus, when Jesus is going to come to make all things new. And you and I, right now, we live in the tension, the in-between of the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. One, One author, Fleming Rutledge, says this. She says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. So yeah, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas, but also Advent is sort of just your life and my life. She says, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. And what I want to try to offer you today out of Isaiah 11, really what I think God wants to hand us in Isaiah 11, is that one of the most foundational things that you and I need to do, not just during Advent, not just during the Christmas season, but in our very existence as Christians on planet Earth, one of the things that you and I have to do the most is cultivate hope around the promises of God to bring peace. And I don't know of a better place to go than Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is going to be where we camp out the next few weeks. Pastor Ben will be back preaching next week in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at different texts in Isaiah that the Old Testament people of God were grabbing a hold of for hope and trusting that God was going to bring peace and that you and I can actually look back on for our own lives. So that's where we're going to go. But let me give you some brief context with Isaiah. So we're we're coming out of the book of Genesis. Last week we wrapped up that series in the book of Genesis, and now we're heading into Isaiah. It can be a little bit of a head turner and a spinning, like what's happening in this book. So let me briefly give you the the high-level overview as we parachute into chapter 11. Sound good? Here's essentially what's happening in Isaiah. The, The people of God had been given two big promises from God. God had said, hey, one day I'm going to, through Abraham's descendants, raise up a son who is going to bless the whole world. Through this son, the whole world is going to be blessed. The second promise that God gave his people was through David, King David's descendants, he's going to raise up another son who would be the king of the people of God. He would be a type of king that nobody had ever seen before that's going to actually restore peace on earth and and bring the people of God back to the, the right relationship with God that King David sort of started, right? So there's these two big promises that God gave the people of Israel, but if you read through the Old Testament, what you quickly discover is that the Israelites actually rejected God and his promises. They they were a lot like us. They're just fickle and they want to believe, but, but then after about 10 minutes of trying to believe, they don't. And they give up hope and they actually reject God. And what they do is they, in rejecting God, they turn to the world to try to have the world give them a sense of security and peace and hope. And specifically what they're doing in this text is that the, the, the people of God in, in Isaiah 11 are now turning to the most powerful nation around them, the Assyrians, and the king of Assyria to be their source of hope. So they're going to reject the God of the Bible, and now they're going to turn to Assyria, the king of Assyria, and they're banking on him to bring hope. But friends, you know the story. Like any time you and I reject God and look to other things to name us and define us and give us hope and security, it never works out. 
It actually leads to more chaos and dysfunction and brokenness. And that's exactly what happened in this story. The, the very king that they were looking to for hope, the king of, of Assyria, turned on them and attacked them. So the very nation that they were looking to for peace ended up being the, the very source of all of their devastation and war and conflict. And so by the time you parachute into Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Israel had gone from this beautiful, luscious, green forest. I think I've got a photo here just to kind of give you a metaphor of, of what would happen, of how the people of Israel were functioning. It was this beautiful forest. And then in chapter 10, what we see is that because of God's judgment on them, it's like all these beautiful trees have been chopped down and now their stumps and even the stumps remaining had been burned. It's a lifeless, devastating, hopeless picture. That's what you get to when you get to chapter 11. So with that image in mind, things are dark, things are bleak, things are lifeless, but look at Isaiah 11 verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Just got two things that I want you to see today. The first one is the promise kept. I, I love this because this is so typical of what God does. The picture is dark, it's bleak. The stumps are chopped down, they're burned. Nothing, nothing, there's no sign of life here at all. And yet that's exactly what God loves to work with when there's no sign of life. He says, oh, and by the way, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of all of this devastation and chaos, I'm going to do something to bring life. That there's actually gonna be the shoot that comes out, a little plant that comes out of this burned out, chopped down stump. I'm gonna do something to bring life. Now listen to the details about who this specific person is gonna be. First, it says that he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, if you don't know, was the father of King David. So, so whoever this person, this is gonna be from the lineage, from the, the line of King David himself. In addition to that, he's going to be a branch from Jesse's roots. Now, that word branch in Hebrew is nasar, which literally means Nazareth. So fascinating, right? So this is going to be a descendant from Jesse's line. Uh, Nazareth is involved. And then it says he'll be full of the Spirit, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Then you get to this idea in verse 3 that he's going to be sinless. It says this, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So unlike all the other kings, this king will be different because from his very essence, he will trust in God and be righteous and sinless and do all that he does in line with the heart of God. And then it finally says this really interesting thing in verse 10. Look at it with me. It says, and in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Did you catch that? Whoever this is, is gonna be both the shoot of Jesse and also the root of Jesse. A shoot comes out of a root because the root is the source of life, right? So what's fascinating is whoever this person is, they're gonna be the son of Jesse, but also according to verse 10, they're gonna be the source of Jesse. How, how can you be both son and source at the same time? Well, friends, here's the whole point. We know this as we read this and look back that this is a promise about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, the very thing that we're celebrating at Christmas, that God entered 
human history. And he did so in an obscure family from the line of Jesse. He was a son of David. He was from the city of Nazareth. And, 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 and it says in, in Matthew 3.16 that when he came up out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God rested on him. He was full of the Spirit. It said that everything he did, he did in line with his father, not doing his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. And we know Jesus would walk around saying stuff like, hey, before Abraham was, I am. So he's both the son of Jesse and also the source, not just of Jesse and his family, but the source of this entire world. He's the creator God who entered human history. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with the incarnation, but we don't have time. Here's the thing that I want you to notice here that I think is fascinating, is that from the time that this promise was given to the people of Israel versus the time that it took for this promise to be fulfilled was like over 700 years. That's crazy. 700 years. So I just want you to imagine for just a minute being an ancient Israelite reading Isaiah 11. And Everything about your lived experience is not good. Everything about your lived experience is chaos, surrounded by dysfunction, death, suffering. There's evil in the world. And I don't, I don't have time to go into all the history, but if you read the history from Isaiah chapter 11 for the next 700 years, it is not a history up and to the right, friends. It is a history of a downward spiral where nation after nation after nation invades and overpowers and, and, and takes the people of Israel captive into a foreign land. So imagine being a teenager in Babylon and your mom and dad were killed by the by the Babylonians and all you've known your whole life is exile and slavery in a foreign land and you're reading Isaiah 11 you're like I don't this is this is not real how can I trust this God where is this it's been 400 years 600 years 700 years and it's complete darkness and complete silence from God and yet friends Christmas actually did come God did arrive on the scene. And it was what he planned to do the whole time. He was at work through all of that history to drive it to that point of Jesus entering our world. And the way he does it is so bizarre, right? Like you would think God entering human history, it's like fanfare, parade, you know, he's going to show up to the most powerful leader on the planet, Caesar, and be like, hey, get off my chair. I'm actually the king of this world. But instead, what does he do? God shows up in obscurity, as a baby, right? And, and, and friends, get this, God became a baby. It's not that like God dressed up in a skin suit and pretended to be a human. God became one of us. He literally took on our humanity. God was in his mother's womb for nine months. God was given eye, uh, uh, elbows and eyebrows and he was put together inside of his mom and God entered the birth canal. God entered our world the way that we enter this world. And he actually went from the, the highest place of glory to stooping down to the lowest place of darkness just to meet with us, just to be with us. And the, the whole point of Jesus' birth is so that it would drive to his, his, his death on a cross where on the cross he would hang there in our place for our Sin. So friends, we can actually trust that God's going to keep his promises because he's already done so. He kept this promise that he gave to the people of Israel 700 years before. And even though it took 700 years, he was faithful to keep his promises. Now, let me, let me pause here. This is often where the Christian story stops. God loved you so much that he entered 
our story. He was born, he lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose again so that you can be forgiven of your sins. I remember uh, growing up in church, I grew up in a good church, but the way I understood the gospel was like, uh, he died for you and all you need to do is put your faith in him and if you do that, then when you die, you'll get to go to heaven with him and live in heaven forever, the end of the story. And so I was sort of like, well, what do I do between now and then? It's like, well, just try not to make God too upset and just live your life and, and then eventually, you know, you're gonna go to heaven one day when you die. And so sort of what had happened is it gave me no vision for this life and this world whatsoever. I, I was missing a massive part of the story. And when you miss a massive part of the story, over time, you actually run the risk of losing interest altogether. Like, let me give you a quick example of this. My wife, who is absolutely amazing, um, there's not a lot of things that she does that just are like annoying to me. You know, she's just an awesome person. But one of the things that she does that really does bother me is uh, watching a movie with my wife. I don't know if you have people in your life this, this way, but I, I'm always like wanting to introduce her to certain shows, specifically The West Wing, which is, I'm not gonna argue with you, the greatest show that's ever been on television. And I'll try to sit down with my wife. It's like, let's watch the show together. And because she has three little kids that are constantly needing her attention, she doesn't have a lot of her time. She kind of gets to the end of her day. She pulls out her phone. And while I'm trying to like show her the show, she's scrolling, right? She's like catching up on her day. She's like texting friends back. I'm like, you got to pay attention. Watch, watch what's happening here. And then eventually she will. She'll put her phone down and she's like, now, who is he? <laughs> and why is she kissing him? And, and it's like, this is why you got to watch the show. This is why you watch the show. And then because she lost interest about the last 15 minutes of the show, what'd she do? She pulls her phone back out and she's scrolling again and she misses the resolve of the whole show. So then we'll be laying in bed later and she's like, hey, whatever happened to, to so-and-so? And it's like, ah, you know? And, and that's every show, every movie with my wife. Like, she, she just can't hang. She doesn't enjoy uh, sitting down and doing that. And so she loses interest altogether. Friends, I actually think this is collectively what's happened to us as Christians in the West. That our story kind of lops off the beginning about creation and it lops off the end. And all we're really living with is this understanding that Jesus died for me and he he rose again so that I can be forgiven and one day I'm going to go to heaven and that's the end of the story and now I'm just going to sing peace on earth, goodwill to men until Jesus comes back. There's so much more. And this is the second final thing I want you to see, which is the promise that's coming for us. So yeah, there's a promise that was kept, but there's a promise that is coming. Look at verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fat, fattened calf together. And I love this image, look at this. And a little child shall lead them. Then the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, friends, there's actually two promises in Isaiah chapter 11. The first promise is the coming of Jesus into the world the first time. But friends, don't forget that there's a second promise of Jesus coming back to this world 
a second time. And what he plans on doing when he comes back to this world is not sucking us off this planet so that you and I can float up in heaven in diapers and stringing harps and doing something weird like that, living in some floating existence in the sky, that Jesus plans on coming back and actually bringing peace to this very world. And I love this image here of what Isaiah is trying to describe. There's two things that are happening here, at least in this text. The first is Isaiah's pointing our attention to the coming promise of peace on earth. Now, now friends, we often think of peace in such a flimsy, shallow way. Peace is like the absence of war. Or peace is like what I hope to achieve if I go to enough counseling sessions and get enough therapy, then maybe I can achieve peace internally. Or peace is like, man, if we can just not have drama or conflict. No, no that's, that's not what scripture means when it talks about peace. In fact, the word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it, it's so full, it's sturdy, it's robust. Here's a definition from Tim Keller. He says, shalom means complete reconciliation a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. Who would describe your life right now as having every relationship being right, perfect, and filled with joy? I mean, you just came out of Thanksgiving with your family. We know that's not true. We, we know it's not true that all of our relationships are as they should be. In this room right now, there are people that, whether publicly in front of people or quietly in the privacy of their own car or home or apartment or whatever, have tears in their eyes from the stuff that they are carrying. There are conversations that, that husbands are having with wives and wives with husbands, and there's conversations that friends are having with other roommates, and there's things that are going on in your life and in my life that are heavy. And if we went around and just shared, hey, what are you carrying that's dark? What are you carrying that's heavy? What in your life right now is causing you pain? What is causing you sorrow? What is not as it should be? We could, we could stay all day sharing stories of the brokenness and the dysfunction and the darkness Friends, in our world today, wolves eat lambs, don't they? And, and leopards attack goats. And little kids don't keep lions as pets and walk them around the neighborhood on a leash because our world is terrifying and full of brokenness. The cow and the bear don't hibernate together and their calves don't get along. And the very thought, as a dad, I've got three little kids, the very thought of one of my kids playing with a poisonous snake or being close to a poisonous snake. I mean, imagine a toddler or an infant like, like crawling up to an adder's nest. It's horrible. It feels, fills you with anxiety and fear. We were recently in Bentonville, Arkansas this last summer, and we were on a kind of a nature preserve, and my son, who uh, I hope he doesn't ever change, but it's kind of hard right now as a dad, he has no fear of anything which makes him a very dangerous, chaotic person to be around. He's six years old. He's not afraid of anything. And I found him reaching down, trying to grab a snake. And as I got up close to the snake, I realized it was a copperhead. And I was like, bear, his name's bear. So now, you know, I'm yelling bear in the middle of this nature preserve. And everyone's like, what is happening over there? You know, it's a bear attacking some kid. And so I'm yelling bear. I'm trying to get my son out of the way because if he were to grab that snake, it could bite him and end his life because our world is broken. Our world is sinful. Our world is not as it should be. It's not full of peace. And yet, friends, Isaiah here is giving us a promise that is as sure as Christmas Day, 
The way that Jesus entered our world the first time, there's gonna come a day where he enters our world a second time, but this time it will be to bring peace. Bring peace. That day is really coming for you. Second thing that Isaiah is telling us here is that this coming promise is one of transformation, not annihilation. It's one of transformation, not annihilation. Here's what I mean. Did you notice here that God doesn't get rid of lions, bears, and snakes? He's not like, you know, in my new world, no lions. Those are just scary. No poisonous snakes. No, what does he do? Well, look at it in verse seven. This is unbelievable. It says, the cow and the bear shall do what? Graze. Can you imagine, you know, Shawnee, farmland, you look out and you're like, and here, kids, is a, a group of cows and bears grazing. That's bizarre. Their young shall lie down together. Look at this. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. This is Isaiah's trying, you know, poetic, symbolic language trying to tell us that God is going to take all the things in our world that are full of darkness or, or are terrifying or bring death or dysfunction or whatever. He's going to do something to this very earth, this very world, to transform it to a place that is, that is once again the place that God designed us to live inside of with his very presence. God transforms killer predators into calm vegetarians. And here's why I think that matters, because I often think that in Christian circles, we, we run the risk of thinking that God is going to take this earth and he's going to throw it away when he comes back. We sort of think of the earth as the Titanic, right? It's going down no matter what, and the goal of, of evangelism is to get people off the Titanic and we're going to safely row to shore because the ship is sinking. It is going down. The earth is going to go to hell in a handbasket. God's going to throw it away, and we're just going to live in this floating existence in heaven forever. That's not ever taught anywhere in Scripture. In fact, the, the text that we have in Revelation 21 does not say, Behold, I am making all new things. What does it say? It says, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is a moment where God, just as he did in Christmas, comes back again into this world and he actually bends down into this world and he looks at every one of us and he wipes away every tear from every eye. He makes all things new and he actually brings peace and transformation, not just in our own soul, but on a global cosmic level. Friends, this is amazing. And these two arrivals of Jesus could not be more different, but they are connected. First arrival happened over 2,000 years ago, and here we are today, 2,000 years later, longing for the second arrival of Jesus. The first arrival was one of humility and obscurity where Jesus came as the Son of God, but the second arrival is going to be one of unrivaled glory and power as he cracks the sky, and he shows up this time as not just the Son of Jesse, but the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus' first arrival, he came to suffer for our sins. He came to die on a cross. He came to lay in a grave. But friends, when Jesus comes back a second time, it will be to end all suffering. It'll be to raise us from our graves. And the only thing that gets to go in the grave when Jesus comes back is death itself. That day is coming for us. And friends, the only reason we can read about babies in Isaiah 11 babies playing with snakes is because there was another baby who came and didn't play with a snake. He crushed the head of one so that he could usher in not just forgiveness of our sins, but complete transformation and redemption of this very world. 
So friends, I don't know what you're carrying with you in the, in the room right now. I don't, know, I don't know what struggles you have. I don't know where the gaps are between singing about peace on earth and goodwill towards men versus where you're actually experiencing peace. But wherever you are, peace is coming for you. As sure as Christmas Day is coming, peace is coming for you. So where do we go from here? Man, I just want to invite you to hold the peace of Christmas carefully this year. When you celebrate Christmas this year, I want you to remember that you're not just looking back on what Jesus has done to fulfill his promises, but you are then bolstering up your hope, your faith, and looking to what he will do when he returns to make all things new. And this keeps us from those weird those weird ditches of either becoming too heartbroken by our world or by looking at our world and becoming too excited about it. We actually, as Christians, can be more sober and realize that, yeah, things are not as they should be. So we can be honest about that. We can pray about that. We can, we can do ministry for one another about that. But even though they're not as they should be, our king is coming again, amen? And he will restore this world. In addition to that, that peace, that real peace, it's not subjective, it's a fact Jesus is returning to this earth, that fact can inform every part of how you engage suffering, how you, how you engage darkness, how you engage brokenness, because no matter how dark it is, no matter how burned out the stump is, Jesus once brought a shoot from that stump, and he is going to return again to make all things new. I want to invite you, would you stand with me? There's a, there's a poem, there's a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that maybe some of you have heard. It's called Christmas Bells. I actually think they're making a movie about his story, but man, Longfellow was experiencing some profound suffering in his life when he wrote this poem, Christmas Bells. His wife had just recently uh, died in a tragic fire. He had tried to save his own wife, but couldn't, and in the process, he got badly burned on his face. He's in horrible pain, recovering from horrible third-degree burns on his face. His son was in the Civil War, which was raging at the time, and had been badly wounded in the war. So they brought his son back to his house, and they weren't sure if his son was going to live or, or die. And it was Christmas morning, and Longfellow woke up, and he was wrestling with his life. Here he is thinking about Christmas, thinking about peace, and nothing about his life felt like peace. Nothing about his life felt like uh, anything that he was singing or all the carols were true. And so he wrote, he sat down to write this poem of lament and grief, and here's what he said. Listen to these words. He said, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So he's hearing the bells of the church in his town play. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But notice the turn here. The turn, he, he goes dark in this part of the poem. He says, then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. So he, now he's hearing not just church bells, but he's hearing cannons from the war. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then notice this, see if you can resonate. He said, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he thinks about the promise, the promise of Isaiah 11, the promise of Jesus. Listen, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, good will to men. Friends, God is not dead, amen? He came once to die, he rose again, and he will not come again to die, he will come to kill death. Jesus' body broken for you, his blood on a cross out of love for you, shed so that you could be forgiven and so this whole world could be changed. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get to stand in the, 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 the challenging but beautiful tension of this promise and this promise. We eat the bread now, remembering that he came and remembering that there's coming a day where we will sit down at the marriage supper of the lamb and we will literally raise our glasses and toast our king who made all things new. So I want you to do that together in groups as you come and grab the bread and grab the cup. We've got wine or juice based on your...